0: All right, uh, we have a long chapter. We're going to take all of Acts chapter 7 this morning. 60 verses. It would be, be helpful if, if, if you don't have a Bible maybe with you to use one. Hopefully there's one in the, the seat in front of you that you could use to see what's happening. Um, In this passage, because it's a whole, it's Stephen's defense, his apologetic, his defense of the faith before the Sanhedrin. You know, I have to admit that reading through this, I just wondered, why does Stephen just give a history lesson to the guys who know this history? And why did he give the history lesson and they get so mad at him? The Lord was good. As i "Stare stared at this a little longer to show me that this makes a lot of sense. And Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit to give this defense to answer the question for the accusations for which were coming at him. What did they say? He talks about the law incorrectly and he talks about the temple incorrectly. Well, these things that Stephen's going to bring up with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon, he's answering their question about God's law and God's, uh, his presence, his temple. So let's read through, follow as I read. This is the word of the Lord, and how powerful it is for our hearts. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land. I totally had a bug spider fly right in my Bible. I apologize. The devil shows up on Sunday mornings all the time. (laughs) Verse 2. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred. And would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father, father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household, all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all the land, throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their, their first visit, And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his word and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, <coughs> excuse me, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. There came the voice, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have, have heard their groaning. And have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, and the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And their hearts And in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god of Rephon, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked for a... asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? And what place or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, help us understand the purpose of your law, the purpose of your presence, the temple, so we can see it in Jesus as Stephen did. God's history with his people reveals the proper purpose that he had for the law and the temple. They were to be the law, the Ten Commandments, and the, the, what is contained in the first five books of the, uh, the, the Old Testament. They were to be together and the tabernacle and the temple. They were to be living witnesses of God's person and his presence. The history of God's people and really all of human history also involves the fact that everybody rejects his person and his presence and limit his presence to what they think it would be. God's law is the revelation of his character. When he gave, us, when he gave his people the Ten Commandments and gave this, uh, you, had, you had three types of law that he gave. You had ceremonial law. Uh, which was dealing with coming into his presence. You had civil law because they were a nation governed by God. They needed to get along. And you had a moral law that this this is what God says is to be. And that moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, comes out of who God is. He says, if you want to experience my presence, stay in bounds. The law creates guardrails for us. It creates a fence line. It creates a perimeter where God says, if you want to experience my presence, obey. And when we obey his law, we experience his person, his character. But behind every one of those principles is his person. God's tabernacle, his temple, the ark itself was the reminder of God's presence. And the location from which he would rule and reign all over, and his rule and reign would be known throughout all the world. When Solomon built the temple, he said, the entire world can look right here and know something about your presence. And God said, I want you to build this so all of the nations of the world can come and experience my presence. Now, Stephen masterfully and winsomely uses four epochs, four periods of time of God relating to his people to reveal his law and his temple are now fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's person. It it pleased God for all the fullness of God to dwell, to tabernacle in Jesus. And so wherever Jesus went, that was the experience of his presence. And we see these four epochs in Abraham's life, Joseph's Moses and then David, Solomon, kind of together because of the, the temple. David wanted to build a temple for God, but he, God told him, you, you've shed too much blood, your son will build it for me. But he, he even told David, he said, why do you want to do this? I'm God. But David, in his heart, wanted to have something on the earth that would represent the greatness of what he knew God to be. And he wanted to make sure that that lasted and God honored that request and had Solomon built it. So let's consider what Stephen says <coughs> <excuse> me, <coughs> about Abraham. We see what, what is God's person that's being revealed, that God is a relational God. He comes to Abram. Uh, at that time, it was Abram. He comes to him when he's in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. He's in Mesopotamia uh, with his father and his brother they go out uh, in Genesis you actually said his father said hey let's, let's get out from this place but along the way is when God said hey it's t- I've got something in store but what we see about God in his relationship he initiates that relationship he initiates the relationship with his people and that relationship is a relationship based in faith God came to Abraham and just simply said trust me I'll leave you trust me and we know from the story of Abraham that he believed, even when God said, I'm gonna, I promise this for, for your entire legacy of your life, that your child is going to be the, the one to carry the promise of salvation to everybody who believes. Abraham says, I got nobody. I got this distant guy, Eliezer of Damascus. I got nothing. Tries to do it his own way, has Ishmael. That's not the promise when God said, I've got a promised one. And that's going to be Isaac. But it was, remember, he believed God. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. There's, a, there's not a performance-based relationship. It's a faith-based relationship. And it's confirmed by the covenant. There are several covenants that we see in Abraham's life, but mostly it's the one of circumcision. God was telling Abram Abraham in that moment, I'm going to give you a covenant that is on the very organ by which I'm going to provide and fulfill my promise to you. That's weird, isn't it? It's weird. Why, why in a place of shame? Why in a place that we cover? Why in a place that, but weirdly enough, everybody knew who was circumcised and who wasn't back then. Very strange. God is God's very particular about this. Why? Because he wants Abraham to know I have made a covenant with you. And what I love about how we sang this morning is that God's the one, Kerr read this, God's the one that keeps his covenant. He's the one that remembers his covenant. And he remembered it with Abraham. So that, that's God's person that is revealed. Remember, this is way before the law is given. God establishes his relationship with Abram, Abraham. This is how it's going to be. It's going to be based in faith way before the law comes. And we see that God's presence is revealed that he's unrestricted. He's all over the place. He's in Mesopotamia, then he's in Haran, then he's in Canaan. And he tells, here is Stephen, he tells these guys, remember, he didn't get an inheritance in that land. Uh, the, the ruling class of the first century, the Sanhedrin, thought they had, they had grounds for a legacy and they could pass on their role to their sons because God had given them the land. They had the inheritance. He's looking back to Abraham, the father of them all, saying, Abraham didn't have anything, not even a foot's length. He had nothing. So pointing out, guys, you're tying too much to the land where your feet rest. God doesn't do that. He didn't do it even with Abraham. So we see God's person, his relationship. We see God's presence. in His. He's unrestricted. He shows up everywhere. And then there's a promise that he gives to Abraham. That Abraham, this is a strange promise too, that Abraham's children will be sojourners. They'll be in a land that's not theirs. So he tells these men who are trusting so much in the temple precinct that they are in and they're ruling, hey, Abraham didn't even have this. Actually, God gave sojourning as a characteristic of our relationship with him, of God's, God's relationship with his people because he wanted all of them to realize this is not your home even though there's an inheritance with the promised land that God's going to fulfill, this is not your home. And he tells us, see, Peter, the apostle Peter says, we are to all the, he writes his letter to all the sojourners. We, we are sojourners with a characteristic of a faith relationship with our God because we, we wait for him to bring us home. To the place that our, our souls, our hearts, our lives, our renewed bodies will rest and be. But there's also something, I think, that, that Stephen's pointing out about God in that sojourning. Remember, God wants his people to reflect himself. So God is a sojourning God in a way. He's a pilgrim of sorts. He shows up in the world all over the place. He's not tied to any one place. That's why when David said, oh, we got to make a big house for you, he said, hold on a second. Remember, I'm not that small. I'm bigger than anything you can imagine. So Abraham shows us that God is relational based in our faith relationship. He's not restricted by a location, and he wanders. He shows up. In a lot of different places, and we see that with Joseph when Joseph then goes down to Egypt. But what do we see about God's person, His law? He's intentional, because we see in Joseph's life, even through the ups and downs, and he had some serious downs before and up. He went to the pit and then was second in ruler, uh, ruler to the Egyptians. God is very intentional in His relationship with us, but also. Look at this. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. And God had a purpose. Remember, God revealed that purpose to Joseph, gave him a couple dreams. He probably told those dreams in a very uh, bratty way to his brothers. Like, hey, guys, guess what God told me? And they resented him for it, rejected him, sold him off into slavery to the Mid- Midianites who then brought him down. He ended up in Potiphar's house and he was falsely accused and and then thrown into prison. And prison really was in the ground. Rejected by his brothers, but what we find in this intentionality is that he was rescued by God to be a ruler in a land that wasn't promised to Abraham. We also see in Joseph as his later life Shows when he's ruler, second in the second in command under Pharaoh. His brothers come that first time, and he doesn't reveal himself completely. But then on their second visit, he reveals himself. I think this is a picture of Jesus coming the first time. His brothers didn't recognize him, but Jesus will come again, and everybody recognizes him. And he's riding on the clouds, on a white horse. So we see that God is very intentional in his relationship with his, his personhood, and, and that carries with the law. The law is intentional to get us to see God. God's presence is also unexpected. It shows up in a land that nobody, nobody would expect God to be there at all because of the vileness, because of the idolatry that was characterized by Egypt. But he's also, his presence also shows up in the unexpected place, that he's with Joseph in the pit. He's also with Joseph in the palace. And the promise that we see from Joseph's experience is that God preserves his people. He preserves his covenant. He preserves what he is working toward, which is culminated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. Now let's look at Moses, because he brings up, again, Moses. Remember, Stephen is saying, you're asking the question about the law in the temple. Here's where I'm helping you. The law shows who God is. Uh, the temple shows his presence. But remember, his presence is not tied to a location, and his law is not based on performance. It's based on faith. So that's why these guys are getting irritated. That's why when, when they finally explode on him, there's, it's brewing. They, they want, they know they're being put on the spot. They want this to change. We feel like you're talking about us. But it gets to Moses, who is the one that got the law. And God's person is revealed to Moses, as well as through Moses, that he is the deliverer. The law is a deliverer to us of sorts. How does it deliver us? It delivers us, by, it delivers us to Jesus. You can't do this in yourself. You've got to go to Jesus. So it's like delivering a package. <laughs> the law delivers us to Jesus. But we see this very unique thing, and, and, and there's this cool thing that Stephen is just going after, highlighting Jesus in everything. This thing about exposed babies. The babies were exposed. It says that of those that Pharaoh said, uh, all the babies need to be thrown into the Nile to kill them off because they're getting too prevalent. But it also says Moses was exposed. So what did God do? He preserved one out of all the ones that were perishing. It's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is that one that that is the beautiful one before God that does the work of being our deliverer who all who are perishing can be saved now. We see in Moses' life that there's (coughs) power and might. First, Moses had human power and might. Look at this. Verse 22. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. What does Moses tell God when God says, I want you to go back to Egypt? He says, "Uh, uh, uh, I stutter. uh, uh, And I don't know how to put phrases together. And I'm the weakest thing on the world, on the earth. I just can't do it. So where he finally... God says, all right, I'll give you Aaron. But no, he really was. There's an Egyptian legend that involves Moses that he led an attack for Pharaoh and won. This guy knew what to do. He was educated. He was empowered in all the mighty works. But he lacked the humility to make it work right and to work rightly. Rightly. I think that's why he, he, put, he, he imposed on himself the time frame of coming forward to his brothers and being their savior and their deliverer. He did it in his own wisdom. And God said it doesn't work that way. But look, Moses too was rejected by his brothers. They thrust him aside. Oh, oh, Mr. High and Mighty is going to now come play with the little kids in the playground? I don't think so. Thrust him aside questioned his rule, questioned who he was. But then we see what? God's person show up again at Mount Sinai with the bush, the burning bush. This is the angel, but we know God was there because he revealed revealed himself as the God of Abraham, (laughs) Isaac, and Jacob. He initiated his relationship with Moses as well. And what does he say? I am, God says to him, I am. Am I this is God's name that Moses who who they're gonna ask your name? Who should I say sending me? Tell them I am has sent me to you. And then we find that when Moses leads them out back to that same place at Mount Sinai, he gives them, remember, that's Mount Sinai. He says, the law is then given at Mount Sinai, not at the temple. These guys are connecting all of this location stuff to the temple as if they have authority and God's, uh, they have God's support or, or uh, words are escaping me right now, uh, favor. That's the one I'm looking for. They have God's favor because now they have the temple. Stephen's letting them know, hey, way before that, Mount Sinai was a big deal. That's where God gave the law. He didn't give the law in the temple. He gave the law there. But what does he call them? Living oracles. The law was to be what would, remember that guardrail, that perimeter that keeps God's people experiencing his presence if they obey. What do we see about his presence? His presence shows up in the wildernesses of life. Shows up for Moses, in his Midian wilderness, but also shows up for God's people as they're in the wilderness after they go through the Red Sea. And they're in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. And it's in this wilderness experience that God gives the greatest picture of where he is located. He says, take off your sandals. Why? Because where you're standing is holy ground. Stephen's saying that because they're treating the temple as if that's the only holy ground. When Steve is saying there's holy ground wherever God is. Wherever we interact with Him, that is holy ground. Whenever we experience His presence, that is holy ground. And what a what a marvelous picture that is. I love the fact that he says, take off your sandals. Why is that? Well, sandals are man made, and God is telling him, I think. One of the things that's happening, he says, I don't want anything man-made in between me and you. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to experience my presence in this moment. So if God's person revealed his deliverer, his presence that shows up in the wilderness and makes our wilderness experience holy, purposeful, set apart for him, and his promise is one of grace, God will only respond in grace to a faith Relationship. He does not respond with grace in a performance-based relationship. It's always in a faith. When we trust him, we find there is ample grace to walk in. But in this grace, God keeps with his people when they continue rejecting him. They reject him. When Moses goes up to the mountain, he's gone too long. They start to freak out in their hearts. They return to Egypt already. And so they're going to bring something of Egypt right there for them to look at. Uh, Aaron, help us just make something because that will go before us. That will be the God that will bow to and go before us. Moses has disappeared. I wonder if they were looking at Moses as a God and they, they, didn't, they couldn't do that. So they start to freak out. But what does God do? Well, one... He gave them over to worship the host of heaven. You're fighting this so much. And God does that in our lives when we just won't get off of something and we're stubborn. He says, you, re- you really want to taste this? Okay, go ahead. Have a taste. And then it's bitter and sour and it's nasty. It's like, all right, God, okay, okay. God does that. He did this with people, with his people in the Old Testament. I think it's still something we bump into In our lives, God, but God does not reject us. He stays with us by grace. And then we get to David and Solomon. He he gets to the point of saying, look, you're, you're looking at the law as if it's going to get you something from God by your performance that you're going to be accepted and God's going to bless you because of how good you are with the law. He says, that's not what the intention was. It was our relationship with God is based in faith, And the law helps us experience that relationship. But we get to David and Solomon, which is then the temple is there. When the the temple started to begin feeling like this was the only place of God's presence, they were misunderstanding that. They were misunderstanding that God was limited to one place on the earth. But what is God's person that's revealed? I love this phrase. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. This, the, what is that describing? God fulfilled his promise to Abraham hundreds of years before. God fulfilled his promise. He is a promise keeper. He remembers his covenant. He cleared out the land for his people. Now they brought his presence. In verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. They brought the tabernacle with them. They brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. Now we look. Sometimes they used it as a a, a lucky piece for war. Let's bring the, the Ark with us so we'll win. Try to do the superstitious thing. Philistines got it a couple times didn't help them because it was the wrong use of the ark. But what we see in God's presence is that God's presence is unlimited. It's not limited to a particular location. The tent of witness went around. It traveled with God's people. I think that's it's probably a better understanding of how the Holy Spirit is inside of believers today because God's presence walks around the earth again. It travels with his people. It's not, ref- it's not uh, confined to one location. But the tent of witness is his dwelling place. But what is, what is the tent of witness in the, the temple? What was it to signify? That a pure and holy God was able to be in the presence of a vile people because of a sacrifice that was made. And we put that on Jesus. His sacrifice makes the The nastiness that we are able to connect with the purity of who God is and God comes and counts us. First counts us clean through justification and then makes us clean through sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And we see the, verse 49, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now the mercy seat, weirdly enough, the original language of the mercy, the, the, uh, which is the cover of the ark that, lay, that was in the Holy of Holies all the time that only the, the high priest would enter just one time a year on the Day of Atonement. They had the, the, the cherubim that were, the wings were coming, almost touching. The, the original word for mercy seat, cover, was footstool. So God is saying this, the earth can't contain me, much less a building contain me. My throne is heaven. My toes hit on the mercy seat. Now that's both, he's transcended, but yet he is here letting us know. You know my feet are here because I want, and, and, and my feet, they're covered with mercy. So wherever I walk is going to be mercy. But it's not limited to just one place, he says, he "Doesn't dwell in a house made by human hands." It can't happen. Now, every idol that has ever uh, been made to exist in the imagination or uh, in, in reality on this earth, throughout centuries, always had a home, and the idol only lived there. So, God is separating Himself, just like He did in Egypt, separating Himself. Uh, from all of the Egyptian gods, with the ten, the ten plagues went after the ten, kind of the top ten Egyptian gods to show them they were powerless. He was the only one that had the power, and now this this temple, he doesn't live there like other idols are expected and known to live. See, God does not live in a house made by human hands, nor does he live in a house made by human intelligence. See, the, the people of God in the first century, the, the ones who were to be living this relationship out, especially in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they limited God in their minds. And how often we do that. We just limit what God would do because we just don't think great thoughts about him. We think small thoughts. God, he's not paying attention to that. He doesn't care about it. He's got better things to do. No, he says, I'm with you. I want you. And I want a faith-based relationship. I want a relationship of love that is an ongoing experience of my presence. So we see in God's person, he's a promise keeper. His presence is unlimited no matter how many times we try to limit him, whether it's in a building or in our minds. But God's promise is this, and this is where we see the culmination, the climax of what Stephen is getting to, that God's promise is true salvation, not because uh, of a false understanding of blessing because they have the law in the temple. No, this is Jesus who is the Messiah, and he says to him, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. See, what is that uncircumcised in heart and ears? You're, you, you have the wrong sign of the covenant. You're, you're not, you might have the sign of the covenant, but your heart doesn't have a covenant relationship with God. You always, he says, you, going back to their fathers, to them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now you can feel why they were so angry, right? he was correcting their understanding of god's law which is to understand god's person he was correcting their understanding of a god's presence that they thought was limited to a location and look second half of verse 52 or or uh, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's saying you're doing the exact same things as your ancestors because you misunderstand the law, you misunderstand the temple. Jesus is the one, the righteous one who is the living oracle of God, who is the presence of God on the earth, and they have rejected him just like their forefathers. And this is where it comes now. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. That's some serious anger. And when Stephen, remember, his face is already intensely shining with a particular glory and a seriousness that they say, okay, let's give this guy an opportunity to respond. And that's when he responds, brothers, brothers and fathers, listen to me. You've misunderstood the law, you've misunderstood the temple. But it keeps on going. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They had enough. Now, just like with Jesus, when they couldn't shut him up, they killed him. Here it is with Stephen. When they can't shut him up, they're going to kill him. But it's almost the insanity of it. they're, They're holding their ears I mean, this is, these are grown men who are out of their minds, in their anger. But isn't that a picture of all rebellion toward God? It's a picture of our rejection of Him and our lack of submission to Him. But He is gracious. And he sees. And also with, with this moment that Stephen is having, he is just like the Savior, even with his prayers. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Very similar to what Jesus said on the cross, but also this. Don't hold this against them. What power, what, what spirit-filled motivation in that moment. Same thing that Jesus said. So all of this is a window Into seeing Jesus, but what we see Jesus do is of very crucial importance. When he gazes into heaven, verse 54, when he, uh, 55, rather, when he gazes into heaven and saw the glory of God, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, uh, um, in in Paul's letters, where is Jesus? What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God typically? He's, sitting, he's seated down. He's sitting. Now, there's a, uh, there's a difference in this. Why is he standing? Is, there, is he confused? Is he nervous? Is Jesus peering in like, huh, Father, what we got? We, this is going to be good? What's going to happen here? No, everything is settled, and he's in control of all of it. But I would think you, would, you can see it this way. Jesus is seated in terms of he's not doing any more work for salvation. His work is done and he sits as the authority, it's finished. So he sits in respect to our salvation. He stands in respect to our persecution and our suffering. But what is he doing? He's our witness in that moment. He's our witness against Satan himself. He's our witness as our intercessor before the Father, saying this, this, this will keep going, and he's praying for us. Oh, do you feel him standing over you? Not in judgment, not in ridicule, not in harshness, but in anticipation. He's standing, looking at Stephen, anticipating, pleased with the work that Stephen is doing, and anticipating welcoming him into eternity with him. Jesus stood as a witness to Stephen, as Stephen stood, as a witness to Christ. And what a beautiful picture that is. And really, I think to, to conclude this is to, to remember how Stephen gazed into heaven. There was a the chapter in, in A.W. Tozer's book, the Pursuit, of, <coughs> the Pursuit of God, called The Gaze of the Soul. And it's always stood with me because I, I want to... See see Jesus, really see him, not just see his activity or see an answered prayer. Those are good. I want those. I just want to see Jesus. So what is the gaze of our soul? The gaze of Stephen's soul was the, the risen and exalted Christ. That's our gaze too. So when we gaze upon him now, we trust him to know his person in a faith relationship. But we also understand that his presence is not located in one particular spot. It's in us through the power of the Spirit. And we're able to walk in his presence and experience his presence in ongoing, ever-increasing measure. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder that we are to see your glory Lord, we do want to see your glory. And that that glory is Jesus. We want to see Jesus with everything that we are. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives that indeed would be windows into the heavenlies, that we would be windows uh, for people to see Jesus and that we would see you so exalted, so glorious. Lord, that it's easy to obey you. It's easy to give our lives to your glory. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Is going to come up for our commission.
1: Forgot my Bible. (laughs) Man, what a word. So to end that word, one of the things we want to do now is we want to remind ourselves of things that we're doing as a local body to continue the going of Christ in our life. And so I just got a couple of announcements. The first one, it's awesome to see How many people are in Jeff's group? I get to drop my daughter off there. So on Wednesday nights, he's leading a group called Knowing God's Peace, where people are wrestling and discussing and trying to get better in creating a life of trust and to give God their anxieties and stuff like that. And it is awesome to just see people sitting around, talking, discussing it, praying with each other, laughing with each other, and really just honestly open in their lives. So if you have not been a part of that and you want to, it's at Jeff's house on Wednesdays um, at 7 p.m. to 8.15. He does cut it off right at 8.15, and then people hang out to like 11. No, I'm just playing. Um, But they do hang out. They got snacks and stuff like that. Also, an awesome, uh, I guess, a praise report is this past Tuesday was the 215 Tribe's first Tuesday night midweek Bible study, and we had three new youth come that aren't a part of the group, and it was awesome. And the best part was I didn't even lead it. The youth led their own youth through studying the the book of Ephesians. And so I only put my little two cents in when I needed to, but they they did a great job on leading their own peers through the Bible. And then, of course, they like to play pool and hang out and goof off after that. But It was awesome, and so just keep praying for the 215 tribe that God would continue to add to our youth community so that more and more youth would come to know Christ. Um, Also, the, the last thing I want to mention is right after the service, if you are part of the children's ministry or your kids are here, I've sent out an email, I've sent out Uh, A text to remind you, because I love to remind, if you don't know me, you know that I am a bulldog with text. You will get text for everything. I have mastered that art, okay, because I'm a millennial. And so we created that whole movement of the texting discussion instead of calling on the phone and actually remembering people's phone numbers. But uh, back to school, Pool Party Bash is right after the service. Um, It's at the Haunt House. It's at 519 West 16th Avenue. And so there's food provided. There's going to be games and competitive games for the kids to win prizes. I love prizes, so I have a whole bunch of prizes from the greatest store ever known to man known as Dollar General. Um, and so we're going to have a good time. There's going to be music. We're going to pray over the kids. They're going to swim. They're going to play games, and they're, going to, they're just going to enjoy. And it's just to celebrate our, our kids' ministry. On the, the kids that the Lord has allowed this local body to serve and love on is a gift from heaven So, parents, I want to let you know, your kids are a gift from heaven. I know they can be aggravating at times. Trust me, I have six of my own. But they are precious in the sight of God, and it is our jobs as parents to continue to live Christ in front of them so that one day they will embrace the faith themselves. And uh, I always tell my kids this, that I am your temporary father, but I can be your eternal brother. And uh, that's the best thing about baptism. Uh, the last thing is men. I want to just harp on this. I know I'm probably harping this maybe too long. Our men's ministry, the pilgrims, is restarting September 13th. And everybody that was a part of our first initial kickoff of it, man, it was so awesome. 22 men around a table discussing pursuing God together is a gift that you can't even describe and so we're going to pick up the next journey that we will go on. It's uh, called it shepherds. But I think a lot of people have this idea that we're just going to be talking about fatherhood. Yes, fatherhood is in that group. But the idea that I have is we need older men to be a part of it. We need younger men to be a part of it. We need youth to be a part of it. Why? Because every man is called by God to shepherd people in their life whether it's their friends or whether it's their children or whether it's their spouse or whether it's their coworkers or whether it's their kids at school. Like God has called all men to shepherd, to lead in such a way that we lead people to Jesus. And so we're using a book called Family Shepherds as a trampoline to jump off on, but there's only three chapters we're focused on because those three chapters can be applied to everybody's life. So men, I would love to see every man in our church a part of that group. Because everybody needs the wisdom from everybody, okay? It's not me leading, teaching. Here's some steps. It is us getting around a table, discussing how God has called each one of us to be a shepherd to those in our life. Everybody, every man in here, you have little flocks in your life that God wants you to lead. So that's September 13th. We have to change the location because the Gills office is under construction, and I wouldn't want you to get stuck with nails and stuff like that or Ryan putting us to work. Um, so we're moving it to uh, Pastor Jeff's house, and that'll be September 13th for six weeks. We'll meet at 6 p.m., and it will cut off at 7.15 p.m. on the dot. And I will respect your time like I did last time because I know all you men and, and, and the youth, all I have, school and work and stuff like that, and i got to get up at 3.30 in the morning the next morning, so I'm going to make sure your time's ended too. And it's just going to be a great time for the men to get together to continue our journey as pilgrims in Christ to be a light to this world, okay so if you want to sign up online, you can you got the q r code or you can hand me cash um and then I will put your name in and then also the cool thing about the men's group is we might have four other churches joining our our pursuit as pilgrims and so I have contacted a person I'm very close to, and he's let me know, hey, can I bring my guys? And I said yes. So we may have a multiple uh, uh, multiple representatives of local bodies around Covington and Mandeville being on pursuit to Jesus together. And so that is a, that is a praise that I, I love that the Lord is doing that. So men, please join. I would love to see you there. Um, but let's stand as we uh, say our benediction, which is the Great Commission I love Jeff's message, specifically the part of the wandering God, the sojourning God. And here is just evidence that our God moves around. Okay, so we'll start. Let's say it together. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be blessed.